You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This is the Marketing Podcast Network. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, the podcast that introduces you to the rich world of storytellers who share their personal journeys, creative processes, and the stories behind their stories, one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and I'm thrilled to be part of your writing journey. If you're an aspiring writer, a literary enthusiast, or simply someone who believes in the transformative power of words, you've come to the right place. Every week, we'll pop the cork on the world of successful storytellers and give you a healthy pour of inspiration, insight, and empowerment. My mission is to help writers like you realize your full potential through the transformative and therapeutic power of writing. Whether you're just starting your literary voyage or looking to refine your craft, I'm here to provide you with the knowledge, inspiration, and encouragement you need to embark on your own storytelling adventure. So, are you ready to uncork your story and let your creativity flow? Uncorking a Story is about to begin. Sit back, relax, and let the transformative magic of storytelling whisk you away. Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Well, hey now, and welcome back to another exciting episode of Uncorking a Story. I'm Mike Carlin, and I'm thrilled to have you join me on another exciting episode. I want to remind you to please follow Uncorking a Story on all social media platforms, including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. You can find us at all of those locations at Uncorking a Story. And a quick note and plug for YouTube, that platform has been a great growth vehicle for the show, especially since we've improved the video quality of our program. It's also become a very fun way for me to interact with my audience. So please subscribe to our YouTube channel by searching for Uncorking a Story on YouTube and hitting subscribe. And for you audio listeners out there, please subscribe, rate, and review Uncorking a Story wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, today's guest is Peggy Townsend, and she's a journalist by trade who pivoted to writing fiction after leaving her job following an acquisition of her newspaper. And if there's one lesson that stands out from this conversation that I really want you to pay attention to, it's the power of persistence. Peggy's full-time career started after her internship at a local newspaper ended, and she decided just to keep showing up for work, even though that her internship was over. She eventually started to get paid again, and man, isn't that a lesson in persistence? But as writers, persistence is right up there with creativity and curiosity when it comes to writing. As a writer, you should be writing something every single day. And it doesn't have to be a set number of words. Like you don't have to write 5,000 words a day or anything like that. But really doing the reps and writing every day is the only way to find and refine your voice as a writer or as an author and um, practice the craft. Um, but but here's the thing. Persistence isn't just for finishing a manuscript. You've got to be persistent when trying to get it published. That means being persistent with finding an agent. And I know, I personally know how discouraging it can be to query agents because, you know, let's face it, most of our query letters, uh, if they do get answered, get answered by a form letter. And by the way, why are those form letters so uncreative? I mean, you think 
given what they do for a living, they could put a little something interesting in there. But for the most part, you're getting those form letters back. Um, and, you know, you, you got to keep going. I, you know, I could wallpaper my my office uh, with with rejection letters or thank you, but no thank you letters from agents. But you've got to be persistent. It took me a while to find an agent. Um, and, you know, it, it, I learned a lesson in college uh, and then it was from uh, my fraternity. And uh, not that I talk about it that often, but there was a line that that I heard um, 30 years ago, which is a pearl of great price isn't obtained for us simply by asking for it. So you really got to keep keep at it. You know, be persistent. Learn from the feedback you're getting from agents. If you are getting feedback, learn from feedback you're getting from editors or people who are you know, giving you feedback on your work, learn from your mistakes. And then of course, forge a path forward. Um, won't happen overnight. Nothing happens overnight for anybody. And overnight might be, you know, might mean six months. Um, it takes a long time to make it as a writer and an author, but just be persistent, you know, keep at it, have the right attitude. It'll eventually happen. My goal for Uncorking a Story is to continually introduce you to successful authors who have made a living through words. And today's lesson, inspired by Peggy Townsend, is to embrace persistence. And now, without further interruptions from yours truly, let's uncork Peggy Townsend's story. Peggy Townsend is an award-winning journalist who has panhandled with street kids, taken to the skies with pararescuers, and once chased an escaped murderer through a graveyard at midnight. Her first mystery, See Her Run, was listed as one of the 13 thrillers to keep you up at night by Kirkus Reviews. Her second book, The Thin Edge, was called an outstanding novel by the Associated Press. And she joins me today on A Corking a Story to discuss her career and latest book, The Beautiful and the Wild. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Peggy. Thank you, Mike. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm excited to have you here, Peggy, and I'm curious, where does your story as an author begin? Um, well, I think I'll trace it. I was, I'm a journalist, so I've been a newspaper reporter for a long time. But I think my writing, creative writing career began um, at the Pointer Institute in Florida. Um, I went there for a nonfiction narrative week. And um, James McBride, the author of the Heaven and Earth Grocery Store, was there as our teacher, uh, guest lecturer. And I swear he changed the way I looked at writing. He just opened my eyes to a whole new way of telling a story. And I use that to move from journalism into writing novels. Um, you know, he just, uh, you know, talked about digging deeply into people's emotions, um, landscape as character, um, concentrating on details and letting them tell the story. So he, he was very, shaped my writing career very much. When when did you decide to become a journalist? When when in your life did did that light bulb go off in your head and said, you know what I want to do with my life? I'm, I want to do something with words, and it's going to be journalism. How how old were you? Well, this is one of those weird things. I'm one of those weird people that I think I was in seventh grade, and um, <laughs> I love to write. And I mean, I love to read. And I thought, oh, I want to be a writer. But then I kept reading about all these writers that died poor, and I just. I didn't want to die poor, <laughs> to live in a hovel. And I thought, well, what can you do and write and make some money? Um, so I decided to become a journalist, um, not knowing that you don't make a lot of money being a journalist, but you aren't living in a hovel either. So that's, well, that's yeah. how I did it. 
journalist. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you can write many manuscripts and books, but if you don't sell one of them, and even when you do, it's not like you know they're they're backing up a Brinks truck to your <laughs> to your house. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Tell me about breaking into the field of journalism when you did, because um, I know it's 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 a pretty competitive industry. How did how did you manage to to break in and, and make a career for yourself there? Well, um, this is kind of a funny story. Is so out of college, I got an internship at a newspaper, and uh, I knew the day that I was supposed to leave, um, and nobody said anything. So I just came to work again the next day, and I just stayed. <laughs> And then I got a paycheck and I figured, oh, I must have been hired. And um, and I also just worked my ass off, too. Like, I didn't just sit there and pretend to be a journalist. Like, I was out there working my ass off. Um, you know, any story they wanted me to cover, I was covering it. And I did some enterprise stuff on my own. Um, so, you know, it was, uh, um, I guess it was persistence, which is also the trait that a novelist needs, too. But I just... Uh, I just fell in love with with journalism and telling a story and um, giving voice to the voiceless. Um, I really saw that as an important part of what I did. So where was that gig? And I, and I have a follow up question for you on this. But where, where was that first first job? Well, it's actually here in Santa Cruz, where I live. I worked at the local newspaper and um, I had this wonderful mentor, this woman who uh, worked at a rival newspaper. And we both were covering cops and courts which is what we called it at the time. And she was just this <laughs> tough as nails, cursing, cigarette smoking, chain smoking woman who um, I think she kind of did it to keep me from scooping her for anything, but she also taught me tons about what it's like to be a journalist. So well, that, um, I think it's so important to have mentors in life. And, and, you know, the, this, this one really does sound like a character, but you know, I, I'm curious, like you're, you're supposed to, you know, not show up for work one day. You keep showing up. Does the managing editor, does anyone just say, what is she still doing here? Or just kind of go with the flow and they started paying you that that to me, that's amazing. <laughs> it is kind of amazing. Um, You have to. I guess I could say it now because but the uh, the editor was a alcoholic basically and so i guess maybe he thought he'd hired me and just never said anything and put in the request for a paycheck and um but i also you know my city editor really liked me too um and so he would have said you're out of here if he thought i didn't deserve to be there so i'm never quite sure exactly how it happened i was kind of afraid to go in and say um you know i never really got formally hired here i just kept collecting my checks well, I want to, and we're going to talk about the book, I promise, but I, I want to dig in just a little bit more to some of the stuff I read in, in your bio and, you know, <clears throat> pararescuers, panhandling with street kids, escaping a murderer through a graveyard. I mean, I, I mean, maybe out of those three, I, I'm, I'm probably most interested in escaping the murderer in the graveyard, but what was, what was that all about? Well, so, um, you know, journalism doesn't, you don't turn it off, you know, when you go home at night, it's one of those professions that you're always in it. And um, so sometimes the cops would just drop by my house and ask if I wanted to ride along. And so um, it was kind of testament to my boring life that I would say, oh, yeah, sure, I'll go ride along. Let's see what's going on. And so this night, um, 
there was a, a police officer and I won't name his name, but that the guy had a second sense. Like he, he was spooky how he knew what was things were going on. So we're going along and it came over the radio that um, a serial a suspected serial killer named Billy Mansfield had escaped from jail with one other inmate. And the reports had a woman had seen these two guys in the downtown area, but the, the cop I was with said, no, that's not where they're going. So we drove up um, a different direction. There's a river near the jail. And we drove up and we parked in this graveyard and we ran across the graveyard and started running up the side trail of this river looking for the guy. Um, you know, it was night. He had a gun. I had a flashlight. Um, and so <laughs> we're walking along this path. And um, I mean, t it was just spooky as heck. You know, I mean, both of us were just like on high alert. And so we followed through the brush up this river um, until I guess it was about an hour later, we got a call that they were had a command center formed. So we had to come back because they were going to do a formal thing with dogs and everything. And sure enough, about I guess it was about six, seven hours later, they found the serial killer up the trail where we had been hiding in a, a log jam. So we were on his path, um, wow. but we just didn't quite get to him. The, um, you know, the name Billy Mansfield, I, I'll be honest, does not sound very threatening. Um, but I guess you can't really judge a, a serial killer by their name. That's, that's very correct. He, <laughs> the, okay. So the weird thing about Billy Mansfield is that, um, Billy Mansfield was spookily handsome. Like he had those husky blue kind of eyes and this gorgeous brown hair and super handsome. And he had was suspected of killing a woman he met at a bar in our town. Um, but they also, the cops later found, I think it was four or five women's bodies buried in the junkyard that his family owned in Florida. And so he was this kind of, spooky combination of like you'd look at him and you'd think you know like he looked like a model or something and yet it hit, hit this really dark interior he was a very not a very nice person yeah i mean what is it about good-looking serial killers i mean that's just not fair um <laughs> <laughs> you know well, what i mean I mean, in my my book, I could hope you can judge the book by its cover, but in real life, you can't judge a book by its cover. <laughs> well, uh, that's a great segue to uh, your book. Um, what can you share with us oh, about? Accidental, the, by the way, I didn't mean to jump in. <laughs> oh no, no, no! This is great. We're gonna, we're gonna. You, you, you just open the door, and I'm gonna walk through it. So, um, what can you share with us about the beautiful in the wild? Well. Um, it's not a chase a serial killer through the Alaskan wilderness kind of story. It's more a domestic suspense. Um, my main character, is, her name is Liv Russo, and she is coping and mourning the fact that her husband has died by suicide when she gets this cryptic text that suggests that he might be alive and living in Alaska. And, she, you know, she has nothing less left to lose. She has a job she doesn't like. She can't pay the rent. She has a young son uh, who's developmentally delayed, and she decides to head north to see if she can find her husband. Um, and what she finds is that he has a second family, and he wants her to join this group that he started this kind of, uh, uh, not a 
love triangle, but this new way of living in the woods. And so <laughs> the whole thing is that her, you know, winter's coming, they're facing starvation, things are going south, jealousy is rampant, and she needs to get out of there with her son. And so that's the, the kind of the core of the story. How did how did this story come to you? Um, it sounds, I mean, it sounds fascinating. And, and I'm just like putting myself and just in this brief, you know, description that you just read in her shoes. And it's uh, it certainly feels like a page turner. But how did how did this idea come to you? Well, a couple of reasons. One, um, as a journalist, I dealt with a lot of secrets, both ones that people tried to conceal and then ones that people revealed to me. Um, but the idea came, um, we have a little cabin up in, uh, near Lake Tahoe and by little cabin, I mean, it's really a cabin. Um, it's not, not a house. So, um, I was, I had a, I was stacking a cord of firewood, which, and listening to podcasts, right. And this podcast came on about a, um, <clears throat> ex-Marine named, um, Billy Sipple, who uh, lived in San Francisco and uh, thwarted the attempted assassination of Gerald Ford. And he became this hero, um, you know, television, newspaper, everybody uh, was covering him and he was, you know, in the news and a, a newspaper and um, a politician decided to out him as gay to, because at that time they wanted to say, oh, here's a hero and look, he's gay um, because the, at the times that was, there was a lot of discrimination. And so they outed him um, and he is, his family didn't know he was gay and other people didn't know he was gay. And uh, Billy ended up dying, according to the podcast, um, you know, pretty a lonely, bitter man living in the Tenderloin in San Francisco, which is not a great place. And um, I was struck by that idea that you could do something so good and so heroic and it would reveal one of your deepest secrets. And what would that be like? So my characters, both Liv and her husband, Mark, have secrets that they are trying to keep hidden. And so that idea sparked the whole basis for the book, which is about how our secrets can be so harmful to us. Yeah, <clears throat> it's just a few things I love about that. Um, number one, kind of where you are, you know, you're you're listening to a podcast, you're at your cabin in the woods, you're stacking firewood. I mean, this is, you know, got all the makings of a great backstory. Um, also love another Billy. I mean, this is the second Billy we've talked about uh, on, on on the show today. But this notion of secrets, because that's really something. And I think this is what really makes a, a great story or a story relatable is that we all have secrets, right? We all hide some things about ourselves. And and the more like as as a writer, you can like kind of weave in things that we all have in common, the more relatable I think it is. Now, of course, this is probably an extreme example, um, you know, having a secret of another family or, or you know, whatever your protagonist secret is, we won't reveal it. But um, it, it is one of those things that like it's it's like part of our shared human experience, which I think is, you know, what what separates, you know, good stories from great stories, maybe. Yeah. Um, actually, uh, here's an interesting little factoid. Um, I did a bunch of research on secrets and there is actually people have looked into secrets and the average person has 13 secrets, five of which they've never told anybody else. So you can think about how, what's your five. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the, but the, uh, the other part of the research that was super interesting to me 
was that um, it wasn't secrets were harmful because you had to keep your story straight, you know, and yeah. the, the things you've told everybody. Secrets are harmful because you think about them all the time. They'll pop up like before you go to bed or when someone's you're watching a show on television and it kind of sparks the memory of your secret. You have secrets are bad because you have to live with your secrets. Yeah. And you can, you know, depending on your, your belief system, you can manifest some pretty bad things. If you're constantly thinking about your secret, it's almost like you can attract some negative things into your life because of the secrets that you're holding. Correct. Correct. And, you know, they bring feelings of shame and then that kind of opens the door to other shame, you know, and uh, shame is a, is a really uh, powerful and destructive emotion. Um, yeah. And so yeah. Yeah, that's kind of why I wanted to explore that idea in this book. And I think that's maybe part of the reason why we feel so much better when when we let, let our secrets go or when we can admit to something. Um, and tell the truth about something or confess something, you know, you put in whatever word you want to put in there. But, you know, there is a healing that comes to us when we're able to, the, you know, finally shed this big secret that we've been carrying around. And and sometimes they get exposed, you know, sometimes our hands are forced, right, to, to right. divulge these things. And sometimes it's not. And, you know, I just think in, in my own life when, you know, when I've finally shared something that I've been keeping from other people or even, you know, keeping from myself to, to be honest, sometimes, you know, you do feel better. There is like a little healing that, that happens there. Yeah, that's correct. And research showed exactly that, that once you told a trusted person or someone that you knew wouldn't be judgmental, that burden of the secret lifted. Um, and the interesting thing is that as a journalist, sometimes people, I was that person that they told their secret to. Um, I remember an especially poignant time for me when I was doing a story about um, uh, abuse by a Catholic priest in our area. And this was before the whole Boston Globe thing. It was just kind of starting to go. And this, you know, just six foot four, handsome, tough law enforcement officer came to me and told me that he had been molested by this priest. And he talked about it and just the the, the burden of that secret, I could just see written all over him. And I, you know, we talked about it. We had a couple sessions and I said, you know, I, I really understand your story. I want to look into it, but I need someone else. I can't just have one person. And he said, well, here's the name of another altar boy um, that you might want to call. And so I called this man, um, you know, this blue collar, salt of the earth kind of guy. And I just started talking to him. And over the phone, he told me that he had been molested, that this priest had come into his house for dinner with his family and he had been sick and the priest had come in his bedroom and molested him. And I was the first person he'd ever told that to. He hadn't told his wife. He hadn't told his friends. No one knew it. And, um, you know, the the privilege of hearing that secret, of hearing his story, um, was so powerful for me. Um, and I actually went on to do a story about this priest who had been moved from parish to parish to parish because he'd been, um, you know, been doing inappropriate things with altar boys. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, you know, that's... He was a horrible, horrible man. 
it's it's such a criminal thing um and of course you know not just you know limited to the you know the catholic priests but in so so many people in positions of power uh do stuff like that but i imagine for this this you know second man you're talking about um him being able to share that with you i imagine like ha- having kept that secret for so long um you know, that must have impacted his life somehow in terms of his, his personal relationships. I mean, I, I have to imagine and, you know, maybe, and this is way off topic here, but once he, once he divulged that to you, did anything change about his life? You know, I don't know specifically, but eventually he came out and let me use his name in the story. So he, um, yeah, I, I think I would guess that it was, um, a healing thing for him to be able to do that. Likewise, the, the, the officer that first approached me to tell me that story. So, um, yeah. So yeah, secrets are, um, such a big part of our life and, and they're so, they can be so harmful. I'm curious as to, um, how you made the pivot from journalism to, you know, writing fiction. And it sounds like, you know, something that was paramount, um, for you was going down to Florida and, and taking this um, seminar. Tell me, tell me a little bit more about kind of what was happening in your life when you decided to to pivot or um, you know make a change. Yeah, so um, as happens as to a lot of newspapers, it got bought by this horrible company, <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I was just sitting there, and um, basically they the the memo came down. We had to have a certain number of stories every day, and they just had to be good enough. They didn't have to be great. They just had to be good enough. And I just thought, there's no way I'm doing journalism good enough, you know, because I really believe so strongly in the the fourth estate and the need for, you know, a watchdog. And so I quit. I walked away. Um, I also, the interesting thing is um, I'd read the book Into the Wild right about the same time and see, I saw the movie and I, I thought to myself, when had I stopped taking leaps of faith? You know, when had I just said, I'm going to go into the unknown because I want to see what's there. And so I quit Um, and it was wonderful. And I I did some work for the university here, UC Santa Cruz, some journalism work. But then I started writing fiction because why not? It's not something I knew how to do. So I started doing it. When when you quit, were you still working for that same paper, that same local paper in Santa Cruz? I was. I was. I can, you know, I'm just imagining like sitting down with HR or the new bosses and, you know, Peggy, you walk in, you say, you know what, um, my time has come. I'm, I'm going on to something else. And they look through their files and they realize we never hired you in the first place. I never thought of that. <laughs> To me, that would be such a funny moment. Like, wait a minute, we don't even have a record of offering you the job. (laughs) I wonder if they did that. I don't know, but um, yeah. So, so so now you um, you're you're kind of off. You're you're starting to write fiction. What, What was like going through your mind? I mean, your safety net in terms of regular employment is um, not there anymore. And now, now you're into the wild, right? I mean, you are kind of going into a little bit of uncharted territory. Tell me, you know, how, how did you feel during that time? You know, I felt really good. 
I felt like I made the right decision. I felt like I didn't compromise my beliefs about journalism. Um, so I, um, yeah, I felt really good about it. And, you know, a couple lucky things have happened. My husband and I were, um, we were, we did kind of flipping houses kind of thing. We had, he was a school teacher and I was a journalist. And so we had this outside job of, you know, fixing up houses and, and selling them. And um, not a lot, we weren't big flippers, but it just gave us enough of a cushion that I could, we could live and we were fine. He re, he had retired from teaching, so we had that income. So we, no, we weren't rich, but we didn't need a lot. So I was, I was excited by the possibilities. Yeah. I, well, I, I want to learn a little bit more about this um, seminar you took. How did you find it? And, um, you know, what do you think you got out of it? Um, well, Pointer is really big in the journalism world. Um, and so I had, I believe a friend told me about it, about this narrative nonfiction. And so I applied and, um, you know, it's fairly rigorous process to get accepted. And um, so I was accepted and I went. And like I said, it was life changing. The, the teachers there were amazing uh, James McBride was incredible. Um, they, we did things like this. This is super interesting for writers. So we had to, um, they gave us a set of facts and we had to write a news story, like a nine or 10 inch news story based on these facts. So being journalists, you know, we're like Pavlov's dogs. They ring the bell. We all write our story. And then after we wrote the story, they said, okay, now, take your story and write a nine line poem based on that story. And so writing a nine line poem out of like a 10 inch story taught me so much about the power of certain words. Like you use certain words that have this depth of meaning that you, and before I would just choose like a regular word, but you use these power words to make your writing be more powerful. And so I always think of that when I'm writing, like what word can I use that's more powerful to describe what's going on or emotion that's happening? Um, that's the, you know, the one thing I felt like was super informative for me, but, you know, just the whole idea of digging deep into a story and noticing details um, that tell a story, um, I don't want to go on too long, but I did this story about a young kid whose dad was a farm worker and his dad wanted him to get out of the fields. And so he's training to be a boxer. And every morning the kid would get up, put on a hefty trash bag and run laps around this block where he lived, where his father stood there with this mug of a plastic truckers mug of 7-Eleven coffee. And before I would have just talked about the kid running, but the fact that this guy was just had this mug of cheap coffee standing there in the cold, watching his son train for his dreams was something I wouldn't have picked up, but I picked up on after the pointer Institute. Yeah. Yeah. It makes it much more interesting. I think when, when, you know, you're not just talking about somebody running and sweating and, and, you know, what the character is going through, but having this observer who is, you know, clearly invested in it also, in in a situation where he's in the cold and and keeping warm and drinking, I've never had Seven Eleven coffee. Um, now I've had Wawa coffee many many times, but never Seven Eleven. Um, 
So I don't know how good or, or how not good it might it's, be. Yeah. Well, not to be, I, I do, we, my husband, and I do a lot of road trips. So we've done some Seven Eleven coffee and believe me, it's a, it's kind of battery acid like, <laughs> but it's cheap. And that's the point, you know, the dad is drinking this cheap coffee so he can buy his kid a pair of, you know, boxing gloves, you know, yeah. wonderful boxing gloves. So um, that's kind of the point of it. But yeah, no. Um, not to put down 7-Eleven and people that might like 7-Eleven coffee, but it's not for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, what, what words of advice would you offer to an aspiring writer? You know, somebody who is, um, you know, wanting, wanting to make a living with, with words and, and maybe somebody who's, who's trying to, to write a book right now. What, what are some words of advice you would, would you uh, give them? Um, I would, a couple of things like persistence is the main thing. Just like if you keep going to work, even if you don't know you're hired, you're writing a book, even though you may not think of yourself as a writer, just keep writing, keep, keep at it, get up every day and sit down at your computer or with a legal pad and a pencil and write, just write something. And you'll find in there, I believe at some point you'll find your voice and then you'll find your story. And once you have that, then you're able to keep to keep going with that um, and to not be afraid of, you know, your first draft is going to be crappy. Everybody's is. Maybe some people aren't. Maybe there's amazing people that they don't have crappy first drafts. But, you know, that's not me. That's not a lot of the writers I know. <laughs> so I so mean, I, I've had crappy third drafts, so. Yeah, or crappy third drafts. But there you go. It's persistence. So you just yeah. keep doing it and find your voice. And then once yeah. you have your voice, you're on your way. And and you know, finding your voice, I know it is subjective, but but you can't really do it unless you're doing the reps, unless you're putting that work in. You're you're not gonna know because I think sometimes and and we all do this, um musicians do this. They try and emulate their their favorite musician. I mean, in the eighties I can't tell you how many guitar players I, I listened to that would you, clearly they were emulating Eddie Van Halen in terms of how they were approaching the instrument. But over time, you know, you do ve- develop your own style. And I think, you know, some of us might emulate our, our favorite writers in, in terms of tone, in terms of structure. But then, you know, something happens, something takes over and, and you find your style, you find your flow, but you can't find it to your point without being persistent, without doing the work and putting the reps in. Yeah, no, a hundred percent, you know, and you can listen to those other voices, read those other words and appreciate them and maybe even think, well, why does that work? But you got to find your own voice and it only comes through practice, you know, through muscle, you know, so through writing muscle. The old writing muscle. Well, Peggy, one way I'd like to get to know my guests a little bit more is by asking a couple of pop culture type questions. So I'm uh, curious. Yeah, don't worry, it's nothing current because um, <laughs> I wouldn't be able to name anything current. But what, when you were growing up, I'm curious, Peggy, what, what were your favorite things to watch on TV? Did you have a, like a go to program that you, you liked as a kid? Well, uh, maybe this is where some of the writer stuff comes. Uh, my, I remember my sister and I used to watch Lassie. And we would sob through every episode. And my parents would come in and they would say, you can't watch Lassie anymore. It makes you too upset. And we would say, no, we want to watch Lassie. 
And so we'd watch it and cry. <laughs> so that's the one that I remember the most, you know. Um, yeah. Was, I remember I, I saw it later on, you know, in reruns or whatever. And I always remember, you know, she was a good dog. I mean, she knew when, what was it, Timmy being caught in a well? Like she knew, like she, and she knew where to go, go for help too. So. Yeah. yeah. But she was always in danger and that made us afraid. And so, but yeah. you know, that's, that's a good book, right? A good book makes you feel so. Well, there's no story without tension. You know, you got to give somebody a reason to keep watching or to keep reading. And, uh, you know, you have to have a little bit of danger. It's funny. My mother was a, a huge animal lover and she would always like if there was something that bad that might happen to a dog on screen, like she would just leave the room. I'm like, Mom, you know, the dog, you know, the, do the dog's going to be fine. You know, yeah. I'm not so sure about Precious from Silence of the Lambs. I don't know if that ever worked out or not. But, you know, nine times out of ten, an author or writer isn't going to do anything bad to an animal because they know that they're just going to get flooded with hate mail. <laughs> you, know? 100%. You, can kill, you can kill all the people you want, but don't hurt a dog. <laughs> yeah, that's a, a lesson I learned that I had no idea existed, but apparently it's 100 percent accurate. It is a thing. It is a thing. Um, what about music? What did you like listening to? Oh, you know, I'm I'm pretty eclectic. Um, are you talking about when I was younger or like now? Yeah. Yeah, when you were younger, and we can talk about now in a minute, but I'm curious when you were younger, yeah. what, what what was in the old, uh, I'd say the Walkman headphones, but that's dating me. Um, <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a hard question because I was not a big music person. I mean, I liked the lyrics, but the songs didn't stick very much. Um, I guess I just liked songs that told stories, you know. Um, I love, you know, uh, this is dating me too, but like Eddie Vedder, and the Foo Fighters, I just love their stuff, you know, because they told the stories. Yeah. And um, yeah. So I'd say songs that tell a story. Um, <laughs> when you said that, my my brain went immediately to uh, Gordon Lightfoot and the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. I mean, because that is a song of that is a story song. And now that's going to be stuck in my head for the rest of the day. And I blame you, Peggy. Oh, I'm so sorry. That is not a good song to have stuck in your head. Um, <laughs> I apologize. I apologize. No, no worries. It was my own, uh, my own brain. You just, you just opened the door, and my brain went, went to, you know, God rest his soul, uh, Gordon Lightfoot. But um, do you have a favorite place where you like to read? I do. So at at our cabin. Um, outside there's a two pine trees in this kind of little flat area. And I just, I take this foldable chaise lounge that I have and I just love to sit out there and read. It's like one of my favorite places to read. I can s sit there for hours and hours and just be transported and, you know, the wind in the trees and, uh, the fresh air. It's just a, a wonderful spot. It, it sounds idyllic. So not just podcasts at the cabin, there's some books there too. A few, yeah. <laughs> that's where I write the best because we really don't have any Wi-Fi there, um, and bare, barely any cell reception. So um, I've had a couple little mini writing retreats with my writer friends, and they're all I get so much done because there's no Wi-Fi. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, you just answered my next question, which is, do you have a favorite place to write? Sounds like it could be this cabin as well. That's my favorite place to write, um, but I also write um, 
you know, I, I just did another podcast where all these people had these great desks that they wrote out. And so my desk I found on the side of the road um, with a free sign on it. <laughs> and it was a really cool desk. And so it's in my garage underneath the surfboards and next to the mountain bikes and the washing machine. So that's where I write most of the time. But my wow. favorite cabin. You know, Santa Cruz, I guess it's, is it by law you have to have at least one surfboard in Santa Cruz or? Oh, of course. Yeah. No. <laughs> you have uh, to have a surfboard and you have to wear flip-flops in November. So. <laughs> well, that sounds good to me. I'm, I'm living in the wrong geographical location. <laughs> um, cause yeah. no, we don't, we want to have flip-flops until maybe the end of May. We'll see. Oh, okay. Yeah. We're pretty uh, much flip-flop all year long. So uh, that, that, that would certainly work for me. Um, but my wife, she, you know, she, she's one of these change of seasons type people. So, um, my last question for you is sometimes the, the most challenging for people to answer. Other people have an easy time with it, which is if you could go back in time and, you know, write a letter to the younger Peggy, what kind of words of advice or encouragement would you give your younger self if you had the opportunity to do so? Oh, that is such a good question. Um, I've never thought of that. Um, I guess I would go back and tell myself to have the confidence to, to take leaps forward, to have the confidence to step off the edge sometimes. Um, I kind of learned to do that um, in journalism, um, like panhandling the street kids and, you know, doing some of the stories that I did. Um, but it was always hard. And I always felt like I didn't have that confidence to do it. And I just, I would tell myself to take the leap, take more leaps. So, um, great question. well, thank you. And, but it actually led me to another, um, which is about empathy. Um, because, you know, you mentioned panhandling with the street kids and that certainly is, you know, you joining them, you know, as, as part of their day and experiencing what they experience, what role does empathy play in writing for you? I think, gosh, um, I, it, it plays a huge, it plays a huge role. Um, I think it's more that I'm able to put myself in a, in someone's in a place where someone is. And I don't know if that's empathy or just being willing to step into where someone is at that moment. Like with the street kids, um, you know, panhandling with them. What I realized is people walked by and didn't even see this kid. Here's this 13 year old kid on his own. People walked by, not a word, not a smile, not an acknowledgement. And I just felt myself move into his world where he was invisible and not only invisible, but shunned. And so um, I think if that's empathy or just being able to step into someone's shoes um, to tell their story, then yeah, I think, um, I think that is important. Yeah, because I bet you couldn't tell that story as effectively without having done that exercise, you know, without feeling what it's like to, to be invisible, um, or, or to be shunned. Um, that, that, you know, that, that's my assumption anyway. And my mother told me always never to assume, 
but um, that's my assumption. No, it was 100. percent It made the story come real. So, well, Peggy, where can people connect with you if they wanted to learn more about Peggy Townsend? Do you have a website, or do you have any social media that you're somewhat active on? Um, you know, I have a website, but I wouldn't go there. Um, I think best is my Instagram, <laughs> um, Peggy Townsend Writer. Um, I, I'm there a lot and I kind of post stuff. What's, what's my life like and what I'm doing and other writers that I admire and um, books that are, that I'm reading. So I think that's the best place to go. Well, I will be sure to put that in the show notes as well as links to where people can buy the beautiful and the wild. Uh, Peggy, thank you so much for stopping by and corking a story and letting me uncork yours. Thank you so much. This was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Yes. Some great questions. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.